0: Welcome to the Center for Lit Podcast Network. You're listening to How to Eat an Elephant, a little book club for large books. Have you ever cast your eyes across a shelf full of classics and been driven screaming from the room by 500-page monsters with thick spines and important names? Then this is the show for you. We're here to take on these scary books together, because how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Well, hey, friends, welcome back to How to Eat an Elephant. On this particular morning, it feels as though I need to say to myself, welcome back to hey! Just to sort <laughs> of you know, marshal all of my energy. We have some tracks to make. We're actually going to do double the number of chapters today mm-hmm. uh, because they're shortening. And But but never fear, the intensity is still very high, right? A little short chapters, but man, there's a lot going on. A I lot mean... going
1: on. It's because we, we didn't meet last week. That's why we're doubling it up. You, you make it sound intentional, but it wasn't.
0: <laughs> you know, I'd made sort of a conscious decision to make us sound like we were in control. As the guy, you know, in charge of the tone of the show and frankly, the leader of the show. and Ian haven't you re- this learned this We're
1: not. And in- having you learned nothing from Tolstoy, there's no control. Yeah. It had
0: to be.
2: <laughs> it's a multiplicity of tiny causes, Ian. It can, it can be yours and Emily's. Both of your reasons are true.
0: Okay, well, anyways, we're going to discuss beginning in chapter, what is it, six? Yep. Beginning in chapter six of part four of volume four on page 1,087. And we get a couple of battles, the last couple of battles of Kutuzov's career. What do you guys make of this Kutuzov section?
2: Well, I got the impression that Tolstoy, who has told us what he wanted to tell us, about Katuzov is now rounding out Katuzov's career, putting, finishing touches on this character that he's drawn and laying him to rest. The, every, every thematic statement that he's made about Katuzov being like the embodiment of the spirit of Russia and the spirit of the army and having that kinship with the Russian spirit seems to come home to rest in these chapters, in the way that he, Comports himself in the last few battles and especially in the way that the Emperor receives him as a conquering hero, but also with disdain. I thought that was fascinating the way that he brought Katuzov to a close. Mm -hmm. It also seems like, as the need for battle comes to a
1: close, the human feeling between the two sides is growing. Um, that yeah. kind of uh, the let's see the line about Natasha, the tiny tendrils of, of uh, grass growing under the destruction. That seems to be the same here, too, as the need for hostilities comes to a close.
2: I love that because it is a natural image as well. Like even the Russian soldiers uh, comment on it as they interact with the French more and more as human beings uh, on page one thousand ninety six. They say, they're also people, one of them said, wrapping himself in his great coat. Even wormwood grows on its root. So a a natural image. And right after that, I thought this was really cool. This is totally random. But right after that, we get an image of the stars again, the stars whispering and dancing in the sky. And it felt very much like Pierre's Comet again, The, the supernatural coming down to touch the human and interacting with relational words. I thought that was really powerful. Hmm.
0: Agreed. Yeah, that, I think that line really stands over the whole section in some ways because he calls it joyful and mysterious, right? And Tulsa is not aiming to explain it all to us, which is funny given the fact that he does want to explain world history to us, but <laughs> he, he doesn't want to explain the thing about human nature and the thing about how we relate to each other. He just wants to paint it and yeah, let us to look point
1: at it. Out. it. Mm-hmm.
0: And I love that, that impulse on his part. It's just beautiful.
1: The fact that he personifies the stars is gorgeous, too. And as he comes to a close here, it does seem to be like a rising crescendo on that point. The, the heavens are personified more and more. Um, so the conversations we had at the beginning or in the middle of this book where we wondered if it was just some kind of fatalistic providence is more and more untrue as he allows it to be personal.
0: Yeah, I love that. So you guys notice that Rambal and Morel show up in the middle of this section, right? And we know them because Pierre's had some experiences with them. And if I recall, you guys can help me, but if I recall the scene correctly, Pierre overextends to this to this Frenchman, right? And is treats him too much like a person and maybe the guy isn't super trustworthy and and there was some conversation that we had about whether whether Pierre had done rightly here or whether this was naivete and foolishness. <laughs> am I am I remembering that right? I think
2: so. I forgot that element of it, though. I thought that it was one of those moments that we admired Pierre for considering everyone a brother. It's one of his right. his right. go-to impulses, and I love that about him. But I'd forgotten. There are, there were two sides to our conversation. We just didn't know if Rambai was safe.
1: Yeah. That, that it was a risk. That exactly. vulnerability is always a risk.
0: Yeah, and I think this—I uh, was trying to think of why he would mention— These two guys, because I don't think he's going to mention them again. I think this is it. I think for one little chapter, those two names pop back up. And the only reason I could think of is that he he wanted to come down firmly on one side of that issue or the other and say, hey, look, humanity. Hey, look, connection. Pierre's instincts are right. And it sort of sets us up to dive back into Pierre's head, which we're going to get to do here in just a second after we dispose of Kutuzov.
2: Well, and the way that it sets us up is we see Rambal being rescued by the Russians who are overwhelmed with this, this convivial spirit, and they're going to take care of him, even though he's been like, you know, starving to death in the woods and on the run from them. And they're carrying him to a fireside, and he's speaking in French. He's running at the mouth with these beautiful, warm, he's basically saying, oh, my fine fellows, my good, good friends, here are men for you. Oh, wow, you guys are the best, you know? (laughs) And it felt very much like, it it felt like Pierre to me, like an overwhelming warm, or like a Rostov, like a Rostov at the peak of a party, you know? That's what he sounded like in that moment.
0: Like a drunken Rostov. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Emily, what did you have to add to that?
2: No, I
1: think that's beautiful. It's contrasted with another sentiment we're given, which is that the reason the French are so hot to trot to get out of mm. Russia is that they know that if they they join the Russian troops that there aren't uh, as many supplies and not because of any bad feeling but simply because of necessity they would be treated as second class citizens and wouldn't get to partake in the provisions mm. so while there is this human feeling there's also a sense of practicality know, yeah and and it, brutal, it's brutal.
2: People are dying. yeah, not harmful, not hated, not guilty, but simply unneeded. That's how the French are in this circumstance and they know it they've got to get out and get to their own country
0: well, and that's that line actually could apply to Katuzov as well. I'm just looking through the last couple of chapters where we get to the to the last statement which is and so he died right right mm-hmm. yeah and it was a little it
2: Jarring. was sad
0: I think it was really sad. But there, Megan, you talked a minute ago about how there's a combination as the Sovereign, Alexander the I, shows up yeah. um, to take power away from Katuzov because his time is over and stuff like that. Um, Tolstoy doesn't, I thought he was going to, for a second, paint the whole thing as still Katuzov is the one who knows. And the Sovereign and everyone else are calculated and cool and collected and they're trying to advance their own agendas and all of this. And the man is being done wrong by history. He doesn't right. actually do that. He, he eventually comes down on reality and says, look, he was there for a purpose and for a time. He fulfilled it. And then he became, and there's that list of things, right? Um, not harmful. Not anyone's enemy. Just not needed he anymore. He the West useful. and remained Galadriel. Galadriel. Exactly. <laughs> exactly.
2: That's a fun association. And, and he <laughs> Tolstoy,
0: this, this gave me a little bit more respect for him as a historian, because he's willing to actually say, look... He didn't, Kutuzov wasn't capable of understanding the implications for what has just happened on the rest of Europe. Mm -hmm. And those implications are real, right? Part of what the Russians did in this era was make sure that Napoleon wouldn't continue gobbling up all of the other countries on the largest continent in the world. (laughs) Yeah.
2: I also thought, though, that that nationalistic element that we've been hearing in Tolstoy for a thousand pages now is still very much present that he's proud that Katuzov represents to the end of his career, that Russian spirit. And he mm-hmm. says as kind of like a send off to the character, uh, once the foe was annihilated, once Russia was delivered and placed at the highest degree of her glory for this Russian man, as a Russian, there was nothing more to do. And so he died. And I think that he really does mean to instill into that comment so much respect for this man, and of course, it's not that the European conflict is unimportant. Like you said, he's a historian enough to acknowledge the war needed to move on and have a new purpose, but he also wants Kutuzov to remain the great man. I dare to say of the conflict, the representative Russian, you know.
1: And there's a sense in which he, by saying and so he died, just so final that he is reiterating that. Katusov served a greater purpose, right? And, and I mean, purposes is going to be a huge conversation for our next section that we're going to talk about. But it seems that in it wasn't his purpose, it was a higher purpose. And when it was over, he was done. And that was the end. I thought there was something so beautifully cheesy and wonderful about the fact that Tolstoy has his own relative Count Tolstoy, who who is truly, we've talked about this before, truly was Tolstoy's relative and really did serve in this war, in this position. And he's the one who presents to Kutuzov the St. George's George's cross. Cross, (laughs) Oh, wow, that's so funny. It's like Tolstoy going back in history and and doing it himself, conferring honor on his hero.
0: Wow,
2: that's cool. I I totally missed that.
0: Well, you know, salutes and tips of the cap and all those sorts of things to Kutuzov, who I'm given to understand, is dead now.
2: He's well. He's died. Yes.
0: Yes, and but onto though our most important character. Yay. Onto Pierre. He's back at long last. It's, oh man, it's, time it's for the Pierre.
1: payoff. I basically underlined every single I line. I know it's it's all one <laughs>
0: giant underline. So I just to open things up, I'll read this. And Pierre is convalescing. He gets sick right after all of his privations are over, which Tolstoy gives us to understand is part of what just happens, right? Like your body endures until it doesn't have to, and then it evidences all the horrible that's things. That's so you've real. Injured.
1: I think it's that's also thing. just being 30, right? Well, <laughs> I, don't 30. Know. I, don't I know, know exactly what he means. You wake up
0: and the whole day. So you he feel says, it. <laughs> he says, On the day Pierre was set free, he saw the corpse of Petya Rostov. On the same day, he learned that Prince Andrei had lived for over a month after the Battle of Borodino and had died only recently in Yaroslavl. I did not make that up. <laughs> that was good. Yaroslavl in the Rostov's house. And on the same day, Denisov, who told this news to Pierre, mentioned Helene's death, supposing that Pierre had already long known of it. <laughs> all this only seemed strange then to Pierre. He felt he could not understand the meaning of all this news. He only made haste then to get away quickly, quickly from those places where people were killing each other to some quiet haven and there to recover, to rest, to rethink all these strange and new things that he learned. During that time.
1: I mean, God bless. Poor I, baby. I'm so glad. That, that he, I mean, I just appreciate and understand the fact that he doesn't even take a second to try to feel bad about no. Helen. He's just no. like,
2: I'm free. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> <laughs> how good. How nice. How good. <laughs> how, 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 good. how good. How nice. I love how many dead. How times nice. you
2: said that. How nice. How nice. <laughs> how
0: nice. She's no longer there. How nice. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, that, that was pretty funny. So yeah, so he's got a lot to process, huh? Yeah, it's so beautiful,
2: Emily. You mentioned that we were going to talk a lot about purposes uh, later on in the passage, and I assumed that this is the passage that you were talking about. It is, yeah. Um, what did you take away from this section? Because I have thoughts as well, but I'm curious to hear yours. Oh man, I love this section so much.
1: I, he's so the he's he's recovering, he's processing these things, and he asks himself, "Well, what then? What am I going to do?" And he answered himself at once, nothing, I'll live. Ah, how nice. (laughs) I I might just keep reading this actually. Yeah, please do. That which he had been tormented by before, which he had constantly sought the purpose of life, now did not exist for him. It was not that this sought for purpose of life happened not to exist for him only at the present moment, but he felt that it did not and could not exist. And this very absence of purpose gave him that full, joyful awareness of freedom, which at that time constituted his happiness. He could have no purpose, because he now had faith. Not faith in some rules, or words, or thoughts, but faith in a living, ever-sensed God. Before he had sought for him in the purposes he set for himself, this seeking for a purpose had only been a seeking for God, and suddenly he had learned in his captivity, not through words, not through arguments, but through immediate sensation, what his nanny had told him long ago, that God is here, right here, everywhere." And so Tolstoy is contrasting for us. I mean, the, the sense of purpose that Pierre has been chasing through this whole book that we have discussed at length. He's tried to find it in masonry, he's tried to find it in service, he's tried to find it everywhere. He's, uh, he's tra- he tried for a while, very concerningly, he tried to find it in being the assassin of Napoleon.
2: very concerning
1: and And now he's saying that overarching sense of purpose is it's a fiction there is you don't have to be so concerned with fulfilling some kind of ultimate purpose because we live in a relationship with an immediate ever-present god and every moment is a gift this is by the way like Very existential. This is very Kierkegaardian. Um, That that the immediacy of a living God.
2: Is purpose in itself.
1: Yep. That, yeah, you don't have to strain or strive.
2: I loved it. I also loved that right after that one-two punch, he references Pierre's nanny and draws forth that childlike tendency that we've seen in Pierre forever and associates it with faith that it's like the faith of a child and it's the the reason for being alive. I love it. It kind of justifies that that simplicity in Pierre that I've always loved.
0: Yeah, it's totally gorgeous. I, I agree with all of that and think that the spyglass, the mental spyglass that Tolstoy mm-hmm. describes was kind of my favorite part because he's got to find a way. And I, this is the last time I'll say it and I'm not this is not me going off on any kind of rant, but just want to remind everyone it's been like 900 pages since we saw Pierre figuratively speaking, right? Since this conversation happened, it's been a long time. And so he's got to find a way to say, okay, remember, this is what we're talking about. And the, the spyglass metaphor is so perfect. I mean, we had long conversations in the early stages of the podcast about how what afflicts Pierre is the idea that it's out there that life is going to happen. Right. Um, it, it must be about me becoming something great, marvelous and wonderful discovering some kind of important thing inside myself. And so, and so you just don't look at what's around you. Mm. And I think to a greater or lesser extent, everyone can identify with that feeling of waiting on your life to start.
2: Absolutely. Right? At least people in their twenties. <laughs>
0: yeah. You're waiting on your life to start. And, and Tolstoy's admonition to all of us in Pierre's experiences here is no, 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 It already started. It's happening. happening right now.
2: It was so comforting. I loved, loved that about it because I got this picture of Pierre striving, like you said, striving and looking up and out. And all the while this purpose was right with him. It wasn't that he lacked for a moment. Here was God ever present. God is right here, right here and everywhere. That was so beautiful. I did not expect that kind of, I don't know, that kind of assertion of faith from Tolstoy
0: yeah yeah oh absolutely. I think that the the layer that that needs to be pointed out is that the purpose isn't Pierre's mm-hmm. there is a purpose though there is a purpose, but it's God's and it's God's business yes. right and he can and rest. so the the yeah. why question is gone. the terrible question why which formerly had destroyed all his mental constructions did not exist for him now. Now to this question why a simple answer was always ready in his soul because there is God. That God without whose will, not a single hair falls from a man's head. In other words, the question of purpose for you, Pierre, is an answered one. And the purpose is in the will of God. Amen. Which, there's a, like, <laughs> nothing you can oh, do to like escape that, book. buddy. It's awesome. It's awesome. Ah. So, then, so he goes from there. And that's, I mean, phew, that would be plenty. But then he goes on to describe Pierre's effect on all of the people that he meets. Yeah. How would you guys characterize that?
2: Oh man, I don't know. I kind of thought that his presence is now infectious, and he the joy that he's discovered and the peace is kind of overflowing and drawing people to him. And mm-hmm. I, I think that is wonderful. He was kind of bumbling before, before this, and I love the way Tolstoy puts it. People involuntarily shunned him. Like they, he just made them uncomfortable, and now he makes them comfortable. By virtue of the fact that he is comfortable for the first time in the novel, I loved that he has room for other people. He makes room for them. I think it's interesting that in the descriptions that we give
1: interactions with him, people don't go away thinking about him so very much as they think about themselves. Like the princess, the princess thinks, "Oh yes, that Pierre, he's such a great guy when he's around good influences like me." <laughs> that they they and he he like while there's a sense in which that is a little odious um <laughs>
2: <laughs> well the princess it, is odious yeah
1: the the thing that's happening is that pierre is not drawing attention to himself that, that he is making he's highlighting other people and other people go away feeling confident in themselves
2: which is pretty great and by contrast the people who Look the most like Pierre used to look, or pursue the interests that Pierre used to pursue. He doesn't fit with them so well any longer, which really marks the change that's happened in him. That that guy Wilarski, who is kind of a I don't know, he's a dissolute member of the upper class. He is he is not turned away by Pierre's the changes in Pierre, but Pierre kind of looks at him and thinks, huh, I'm not interested in any of the things that you're interested in. An,
0: yeah, in, wow, anymore. that used to be me, and it isn't yeah. anymore.
2: But even that, even Wolarski still wants to be with him, still doesn't feel judged by him. He wants to be his right-hand man. But Pierre's kind of looking at him wonderingly, thinking, huh, I've come so far. <laughs>
1: yeah, there's a. we're told that Pierre now has an arbiter inside of him, who by some laws unknown to him decided what must and must not be done. And Tolstoy puts that in a very mysterious way, which is good. But I think essentially what's happening here is that Pierre now has a a standard by which to measure value so that when people, he has an inner and like, it's not um, rational necessarily. So it's good that he describes it as unknown, but like he he has a gut instinct now that can evaluate whether someone has come to him seeking status or uh, if they're, if their values are not essential, mm-hmm. he, he, he's turned away from that. And when someone like his friend, this Italian soldier really does need something, he can sense that too.
0: Which is, I, I'm given to understand that it's because he's no longer thinking about himself. Mm-hmm. He's so confident that the question isn't... Um, if I'm doing what it right. Well, I do. Is it right for me to do this? The question is, is it right or wrong? And mm. the question of how he is and how he seems is totally irrelevant. So it's not it's it's just as easy for him to say no to someone as it is for him to say yes to someone.
2: Yeah, that's good.
0: Which would never have been true of him before.
2: No, because he's a respecter of persons and always has been. I mean, he actually has been concerned with what other people will think of him. And that phrase, like you referenced, Emily, it must be so, has always been, I must be manipulated by that person because I don't want them to think poorly of me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And now he's not concerned with that at all. I thought I think that's so powerful. And yet it still must be so,
0: but for right. other reasons.
2: It must be so for reasons outside of him.
0: Mm-hmm. So the, the connection between this new Pierre that we get and and Tolstoy, well, I, I should say Tolstoy uses this new Pierre in his new perspective to connect us back to the fate of the city of Moscow. And I think this, hopefully this is among his final um, historical comments, but this one is really interesting. <laughs> I really like the way he put this.
2: Good luck, Ian. I think he's going to circle back.
0: He's, yeah, well. He's talking about vitality in Pierre, right? This new life that he got, uh, that he has. And that new life that he has causes him to see it everywhere else. He sees it in people who, who don't see it themselves, and that's what he draws out of everyone, is the, the essential part of them. And then he admires it, right? So this is what Pierre is about to do in the, to the city, about the city. And he gives Tolstoy the opportunity to, in a way that's natural and doesn't break up the narrative, observe that about Moscow. Which goes about doing its, doing the way itself does, right? What? <laughs> very unselfconsciously is the point I'm trying to make. The city of Moscow rushes back into itself. All of the people that constitute the city rush back into itself. And the impact of all of them doing exactly what the French were doing, which is looting, the impact of that is to jumpstart the economy of the city. It's
1: very, like, it's a very kind of capitalist idea right oh for sure they're involved in crime but all of a sudden there's so many of them serving their self-interest
0: that it kind of reform works
2: into an economy (laughs) somehow it works yeah
0: (laughs) yeah but what he talks about is very much i i just think we have pierre and moscow as twin images is what i'm trying to point out because Mm. he says the phrase everything was destroyed except for something immaterial but mighty and indestructible Mm -hmm. and that's what we see in pierre everything's destroyed All of his carefully built castles in the sky, intellectually and spiritually and all these things are completely destroyed, except for that thing which is the most essential and true and is therefore mighty and indestructible. I
2: love that. I hadn't thought about that. But it wouldn't be the first time that Pierre's individual experience matches the larger Russian spirit and what's going on with with all of his country, you know? Mm -hmm. I think that's, that's part and parcel with Tolstoy's initial goal. He's so good at the individual, the, the tiny internal drama. And I think that maybe if we could talk to him, he would say, my goal in this novel is to, is to demonstrate both on a great grand scheme and in this deeply personal, intimate level, the same theme two times, you know? Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah I think you're right. So cool. So uh, we, we, we come, at last, finally... To the most important moment in the novel thus far. Emily, what moment am I speaking of?
1: Oh, man. Chapter 15, it, where oh, the payoff buddy. begins. The payoff And begins. then we have to
2: have ultimate self-control and not just rush through <laughs> the next 10 chapters.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I loved this little description that we get of Pierre. Because Pierre is going, he's in Moscow. And we have learned earlier that Maria is in Moscow and... We know as readers that Natasha's with her, but Pierre's going to see Maria because Andre has been on his mind. Right. And I love this little meditation of his. He says he remembered about Kertiev, about his death, and involuntarily started comparing these two men, Kertiev and Andre. So different and at the same time so similar because of the love that he had for both of them and because both had lived and both had died. That is so interesting that – I mean, we've had our complaints about André, but there was a sense in which it was obvious that André – was in touch with the deeper themes of this novel and was meant to be in communication with them. And so, and so was Kertiev. And so of all the things that like there could have been a great treatise at length about the similarities between the observations of André and Kertiev. Now, granted, Pierre doesn't know about André's meditations before death and the ways that we were so dissatisfied with them. But when Pierre compares them, the reason that they're similar to him is First of all, they were men. they were both born and and died, and then also he loved them. Mm-hmm. That's the thing that compares them,
0: yeah, it's really true. It's absolutely true. so Emily, what are the what are the main points of agreement between Andre and karatev?
1: Oh, man, that's a really difficult question, yeah i I mean if both of them do kind of preach distance right we talked about the tension between distance and relationship and kertiev did basically say he he held relationships with an open hand Mm -hmm. um and they didn't he he mattered like they mattered to him but he was willing to let them go and he wasn't unwilling to get too attached and that's essentially what andre comes to
0: right doesn't don't they also both talk openly about how love is the thing right Mm -hmm. love is the thing that's where that's where andre ends up but
1: it's a very unparticular sort of love Mm -hmm.
2: for both of them it's it's unparticular though for karatiev he loves everyone equally and for andre he kind of loves no one particularly
1: (laughs) (laughs) and so isn't it interesting then that the thing that compares or that makes them similar in pierre's mind is that he particularly loves them both Mm Mm-hmm. Do you like? I just really want that to be a a, a conversation between Pierre and Andre, that Pierre is willing to love people particularly.
0: Yeah, well, he particularly loves Natasha.
2: Well, I loved <laughs> as we're going into this scene where he realizes that she's there, and you know she comes upon him unawares. I love that he goes into it with no thought for her whatsoever, except that. He assumes that his affection for her now long in the past was deliberately affected by himself. He basically looks at it and thinks, I think that I made that up because I was childish. I think that is part and parcel with a lot of things that life has moved me past and moved me beyond. Baby bathwater. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Baby bathwater, yeah. Mm -hmm. He's set up for an amazing revelation.
0: The metaphors, man, the way that he... The way that Tolstoy describes the moment is so great. The face with its attentive eyes, with difficulty, with effort, like a rusty door opening. Sorry, I know it's a simile. All right. (laughs) Like a rusty door opening, smiled. And from that open door, there suddenly breathed and poured out upon Pierre, that long forgotten happiness of which, especially now, he was not even thinking. Mm. Isn't that great?
1: Yeah. uh, It's like a window into... I mean... This is also a very existential idea, but the fact that it's a door is like a a gateway into something eternal, right? If, If Pierre has learned to look at the mundane and the everyday to find meaning, then this is exactly that working for him, right? There's a time when mundanity is transformed into a gateway to the essential, the eternal, and that's happening to him right now in the face of Natasha,
2: I love it. I also love it compared to that passage we just talked about with God's presence being there with him whether he sees it or not. But suddenly his eyes are opened and he sees it and it's a new purpose for him that's a given like a gift. In the same way, Pierre is really passive in this scene where the door opens and suddenly it's breathed and poured out upon Pierre a long forgotten happiness. It breathes out, envelops and swallows him whole. He's just standing there passively. When she smiled, there could no longer be any doubt. It was Natasha and he loved her. That was so beautiful it just comes upon him it yep, with, i love that it swallows imagery him. Mm-hmm. it's breathing and swallowing him you know yep so that again
1: he's not like what happens when you're swallowed whole well you're gone right his right you're his lost and indivi- like he's not concerned with himself again in this moment it's the diminishing of pierre
0: so we've been prepared to understand the full depth of what's happening here as Tolstoy has described Pierre's effect on all these other people, right? And we talked about it a second ago, the effect of of figuring out and unconsciously heightening and drawing out their best selves, and then noticing that thing and admiring it. And that's what draws everybody to Pierre. If this were all about Natasha and her joy and the happiness that that he bring that she brings him, enveloping him, it would be a very one-sided love story. But it is not all mm. about that because the reason he couldn't recognize Natasha is because she didn't have that smile before he walked into the room. Mm-mm. Right? It was gone. Life had life had stolen that from her, which was always there before, right? Tolstoy is very clear with us. There had always been on her face and in her eyes this imperceptible joy that just beamed out of her. And It it was gone until they make eye contact. And then Pierre does his thing, that unconscious thing that he's not choosing to do, that he's just doing because everything else has been destroyed except that which is the most mighty and indestructible, right? And that thing is to draw out of a person what is the most of them about them. And what is Natasha? She is joy. That's what Natasha is.
2: She's always smiled at the secret joy of life.
0: Yeah. Right. And when he is there, that joy comes back. Mm -hmm. And so they're working on each other,
2: Mm -hmm.
0: making each other the person that they're supposed to be.
2: I think it's really cool that Princess Maria is present in this scene. At first, I thought, wow, three's a crowd, you know, But, (laughs) (laughs) but then the more I think about it, the more I think her presence is really necessary as a witness to what's happening to both of them. She is kind of like us, like the reader in this scene observing their effect on one another and she's uh she's gonna bear bear witness to both of them that this is real and that it's that they stand there passively receiving love for one another and that it's transforming them i think that's gonna grow in the next couple of chapters and her role as their mutual friend is going to be really fun to watch
1: well and not just mutual friend but she kind of has an emotional interest in this right natasha was supposed to marry her brother and so, if I mean, how is she to know that this isn't just another Anatole moment, right? That she, that Natasha's flighty and will, her affections are easy to change. But the fact that Maria is able to be a witness to it means that she's in on, on the secret life that's taking place. Right. It's
2: also the phrasing is so innocent too. I mean, it's phrased like Pierre involuntarily told her, and Princess Maria. And above all himself, a secret he himself was unaware of. (laughs) He said to himself and to her and to Princess Maria that he loved her. (laughs) It's a little bit like, oh, oh, hello. Yes, this (laughs) is here. You know, I thought that was so beautiful.
1: It's what we were just talking about this with Rambal, that he he's vulnerable in a situation that could be really dangerous and he doesn't even make a decision about that here. It's not like he speaks up. It's just there's no. He literally the the things that he has learned um didn't strengthen his his filter. The filter is completely destroyed. He's not like there's a sense in which we would hope that he had learned to be more prudent, but the actual result is that he's not prudent at all. Like yeah. all all sense of protecting himself is completely
2: wiped away if he ever had it gorgeous i can't yeah. believe we had to stop right there
0: i know i know that's it though that is it that's as far as we made it
2: I know listeners can you even wait i mean it's like finally at page 1000 billion <laughs> here here we are ready for the payoff
1: according to the facebook page
0: a lot of people are just forging ahead. yeah
2: we're well, ahead. Total more, more power to you
0: all <laughs> we will catch up <laughs> Thank you both for your insights. Aren't you so glad we've made it? We've made yes, it to, to the, the good payoff. Let's go. Yeah, cool.
1: We're it's we're crazy close. We're like getting almost a hundred pages from the end.
2: Are you serious? That's nothing for Tolstoy lovers. And
1: next time we're we're getting to the end of part four and the only thing left will be
2: the epilogue. I can't believe he has an epilogue. I just I'm gonna give Tolstoy such trouble about this in heaven. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah, we're gonna give him absolute hell. Listen, we'll buddy. <laughs> Listen, I hope you that bombastic. you have learned
2: brevity now that you're in the holy city. <laughs> oh
0: my gosh. Probably not, though, because as he seems to be implying here in the presence of God, the things that we actually are <laughs> get bigger and more beautiful and more irresistible.
2: So he's going to be even wordier in heaven? Let That's know. what I'm trying to say, yes. He's going to
0: be the king bombast of all the bombasts. Him and Dickens are going to sit there together, and neither one of them will shut up, and both of them will be happy about it.
2: <laughs> he does often get compared to Dickens. Yeah. Actually, I got a cooler fact than that. Did you know that he loved Dickens, and in fact wrote all of War and Peace in front of a portrait of Dickens? And though he moved his writing location around the house, Tolstoy did, he moved that portrait wherever he went because he was so enamored with Dickens' characterization.
0: It's about Charlie Dickens. It's all about Charlie Dickens.
2: Isn't that precious? (laughs) I know. It was like Uh, he was his inspiration.
0: He had a huge man crush on the other wordiest guy ever. Yeah. (laughs) For real. That's great. Well, thank you listeners for joining us. Can't wait to see you again on a subsequent episode. And uh, enjoy reading the payoff of this great novel. Woohoo. Bon appétit, friends.
2: Bon Bon appétit.
1: Want to follow along with our reading? You can find a link to the schedule in the show notes for this episode. How to Eat an Elephant is a part of the Center for Lit podcast network. Visit our website at www.centerforlit.com to find our other literary shows, resources, and our membership program, The Pelican Society, where you can get access to a variety of live discussion groups. You can also find us on most social media channels. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time. Happy reading!